namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I'm very glad to be back with uh, everyone for this um, uh, Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so the uh, the theme for the talk this afternoon is uh, work and the path. Uh, so this is a very uh, interesting area to uh, to reflect upon as uh, all of us have some kind of, of work that we're engaged in we uh, are involved in activity in the world uh, when we consider the path the, the path that the Buddha described is the path towards peace the path towards freedom and the way that we we usually relate to peace and freedom in uh, our lives uh, in the world is uh, peace is what happens when the work has stopped, right? Uh, thank goodness it's the weekend. You know, I'm looking forward to when I retire. Uh, oh my, uh, I'm such, so, it's so great, uh, I've got a holiday. But uh, peace and freedom, uh, we associate with when the work is not. When the work has stopped, you know, thank God it's Friday. Uh, when, I've uh, when I've retired, uh, then I can, uh, I can have some peace. I'll be able to be, to be free. So, a fair <laughs> synopsis that we tend to relate to that uh, um, absence of any kind of uh, activity or obligation we associate with uh, with freedom and with peacefulness, with with uh, fulfillment, satisfaction. Now, if uh, if peace meant uh, an absence of activity, an ex an absence of of uh, engagement. Then, um, when the Buddha describes the the eightfold path, uh, how could there be such a thing as right action, sama kamanto? Right? <laughs> if action is not uh, is uh, is intrinsically not peaceful, uh, how uh, then how could uh, how could there be uh, sama kamanto, right action, or sama ajivo, right livelihood, uh, right effort, uh, sama vayamo? Or even write speech, samavacha. Oh, this is important to consider you know, that the uh, these factors of, of the eightfold path um, they are are there because um, they are um, uh, pointing to the ways that we can uh, live and, and act and do. We can in, engage and apply effort, uh, do our work. And for that that effort to not be something that is the uh, say an intrusion upon our freedom, an intrusion upon peacefulness, uh, we often are considering that that uh, work uh, is a uh, is a burden, is a chore, and we use those uh, those kind of terms like a chore uh, as a pejorative term, as a negative term. But 
if we are, I would suggest, and I'd like to make the, the theme for, for this afternoon, uh, I'd like to su suggest that uh, it's only through a, a mis a handling, a misunderstanding of of what work is and, and how to work, that that make, making of effort is somehow an intrusion upon our freedom. Uh, so then when we, we reconfigure the way that we relate to work, the way that we relate to activity and engagement, then we are, are not, uh, uh, we're, in a way, we're, we're freeing our heart from that obsession with looking towards, uh, uh, looking towards Friday, <laughs> looking towards the weekend, looking towards the holiday, looking towards the retirement, looking towards maybe after we've died, you know, um, to, uh, that when I've got this, when this is over, then I will, and you know, then it's going to be really great. <laughs> That we can free ourselves from that way of uh, putting off uh, our uh, experience of peace, our experience of freedom, we uh, uh, we realize we don't have to put that off into the future, or just think of that as something that's only obtainable when there isn't some kind of uh, work or some kind of activity, some kind of engagement, but rather that um, we are able to uh, apply effort. We're able to to work. And to to operate from a place uh, from a place of peacefulness while still being engaged, so that then that exp uh, that employment uh, of effort, the application of effort, is not something that is uh, intrinsically stressful, is not dukkha, is not uh, unsatisfactory, or or somehow uh, an intrusion upon us. There, uh, there's a, a passage in the suttas. Um, an, an encounter between uh, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, um, and one of his great disciples, and a Brahmin called Unaba. And this uh, took place in um, Kosambi, in Gosita's Park. And it starts off with this Brahmin, uh, uh, Unaba, asking Ananda, For what purpose, Master Ananda, is the holy life lived under the ascetic Gotama? And Venerable Ananda replies, It's for the sake of abandoning desire, Brahmin, that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. And then he says, But Master Ananda, is there a path, is there a way for the abandoning of this desire? And Ananda says, Yes, there is indeed. And um, then as he um, uh, he spells it out, uh, Ananda says, Here, Brahmin, uh, one develops the basis of spiritual power that possesses concentration due to desire and volitional formations of striving. It develops the basis of spiritual power that possesses concentration uh, due to energy, due to uh, concentration, due to mind, concentration due to investigation, and volitional formations of striving. So that's uh, using the scriptural terminology um, that uh, uh, Ananda is pointing to, the what are called the four right efforts. And the first of those, as he says, is that... Uh, um, Concentration due to desire and volitional, form, volitional formations of striving. So he's talking about uh, you have to apply desire uh, in order to come to the ending of desire. So uh, Unaba says, if that's the case, Master Ananda, the situation is interminable, not terminable. It's, it's a circular argument. Uh, it's impossible that one can abandon desire by means of desire itself. And then Ananda says, well then, Brahmin, I'll ask you a question about this matter. Answer as you see fit. What do you think? Did you earlier have the desire, I will go to the park? And after you went to the park, did the corresponding desire subside? Yes, sir. 
did you earlier arouse the energy energy thinking i will go to the park and after you went to the park did the corresponding energy subside yes sir did you earlier make up your mind i will go to the park and after you went to the park did the corresponding resolution subside yes sir did you earlier make an investigation shall i go to the park and after you went to the park did the corresponding investigation subside yes sir it's exactly the same brahmin um <coughs> you know one who has lived a holy life that were uh, earlier they had the desire for the attainment of arahantship and when, they, when and when they attained arahantship the corresponding desire subsided earlier they had the uh, the uh, aroused the energy for the attainment of arahantship and when arahantship had been attained the corresponding energy subsided uh, and so forth so that uh, that little phrase there uh, when unaba quite innocently asks um it's impossible that one can uh, abandon desire by means of desire itself um ananda explains that very very neatly that uh, say yeah it says you had the desire i, I want to go to the park when you got to the park <laughs> the uh, the desire subsided and so he point, he's pointing to the the skillful use of desire and in that respect the word desire is chanda now when when we are um uh, uh, say applying ourselves in that way and using that that format of what's called the four right efforts then there's a, definitely a direction that we're giving to our life that uh, <coughs> we are as the, the first of the the four right efforts is chanda interest or desire like yeah i want to go to the park i want to come to amravati <laughs> and then uh the second is virya is the effort so you in, to come to amravati you had to get in your car or get in your friend's car and get on the train and uh you had to to make the the had to apply effort to get here you had, and then the third one the third of the four right efforts is chitta is thinking you had to think about okay i want to get to amravati now um, i want to get there to be in time for the to talk at two o'clock so that means i should set off from home uh, by uh, by noon or i should or i get there in time for the meal so i should set off by 10 so i get there by 11:30 and so on and so forth you you think it through you you plan you use your uh, intellectual faculties to explore um the the task uh, that you want to carry out and then the last one vimangsa is investigation is like okay uh, i had the idea to go to amravati and um i've uh, you know, i made the plan and I, i've made the effort now have i actually arrived there <laughs> obviously if i'm talking to you right now yes the, the answer is yes <laughs> you have indeed arrived so that it gives a framework for the application of uh of desire and that uh when we are uh, when we use the english term desire then especially in within a buddhist context we have this uh this sort of reflex of well, no, wait wait a minute wait a minute didn't the buddha say desire is the root of all suffering desire is the origin of suffering and we look at the four noble truths when the buddha defines the second noble truth the cause of suffering desire is it but so this is a, a crucial element to understanding how to 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 work uh, and to work in a way that's in tune with dhamma because when um uh, our uh, uh our attitude is in tune with, with dhamma then we are uh, we we guide our lives we work based upon the four right efforts the four samapadana and that uh, that's when the buddha defines right effort he uses these qualities uh, interest chanda energy virya chitta thinking and vimangsa reviewing or investigation 
And <clears throat> so there's definitely a direction that we're giving, we're applying effort. But the, um, that direction, that intention, that, uh, that application of effort, um, that is the application of our mental uh, capacities, our, our faculties, but we're without, co- without creating the causes for suffering. So that is um, say how we can apply effort and give direction to our life in a skillful way. The, the desire that is the cause of, of, of suffering, the one that's the troublemaker, is tanha. And so we use the same English word, desire, to refer to those two qualities, but they're very, very different things. So we should learn how to also use the word desire without reacting to it, <laughs> but instead recognize that, yeah, we can make choices, we can direct our life, we can direct our actions and our efforts that in, in a way that, um, that uh, is not causing dukkha, is not causing stress, and not causing disharmony within ourselves. If, uh, if our actions are based on tanha, on craving, then there's always a self-centered, uh, reactive, um, and compulsive quality to that. So that the, the desire, or the, the craving that is the, the cause of, of dukkha, that's the, the sort of the essence of the second noble truth, uh, there's always a sense of I and me and mine involved in that. So that the work that is the chore, the work that, that <laughs> is stressful and burdensome, that it has always uh, that the the thing that makes it stressful and burdensome is me. I mean, not well you, you know, <laughs> not the, not me personally, but the, it's the fact that I've got to work. I've got to go to work on Monday. I've got to, this is I, I've got to take care of this job. It's up to me. I'm worried about what they think about me. I've got to succeed. I don't want to fail. Yeah, I've got to get this right. I don't want to be uh, criticized. I don't want to get. I don't want to, to get fired. <laughs> I've got to pass this exam, I've got to get this job done, I've got to clean this house, I've got to put up this building. The more that there is the element of I and me and mine involved, then the greater we create that sense of burden and stress and difficulty, and then the longing for Friday, the longing for retirement, the longing for some uh, some peace. But that uh, <clears throat> and that that uh, quality of stress and pressure is is uh, is obviously there. But the, if we can uh, see that the, 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 uh, the thing that makes a difference is uh, that eye-making and mind-making habit, what's called ahankara. Uh, ahang means I am, kara is to do or to make. Um, ahankara, the eye-making or mind-making, mamankara, uh, that's, that's the habit, that's the attitude of mind that makes work burdensome. So, now, these are, are very difficult uh, it can be very, very difficult to tell the difference between these two. And oftentimes we we, uh, we make the mistake of thinking that well, peace is somehow, some uh, it's uh, to do with, with not engaging, not doing, it's to do with with um, not having any kind of desire. But if we study the Buddha's teaching, that you can see just by what's, the, those elements of the Eightfold Path, your right, right effort, right, uh, right uh, action, right livelihood and so on, there's a lot of doing uh, in many of the lists that the Buddha makes of the most wholesome qualities. There's a lot of energy. You know, virya um, is on a lot of those lists. Uh, vayama uh, uh, effort is on the, is one of the members of the Eightfold Path. So intrinsic in the Buddha's path, there's a lot of doing. And just to use the word path, it implies that there is a there's a track that needs to be followed. Uh, effort 
needs to be made to, to follow that track. So that it, this is an extremely, uh, it's a subtle difference, but it makes a, a, a huge, um, <clears throat> has a huge impact on the, the way that we can function in life. Uh, the these two, so the the desire which is the cause of suffering, the tanha, and <clears throat> is uh, um, is all the more difficult because when we think of craving, you know, like using a word like craving, um, that uh, gives a, a you know a nice vivid image of, sort of <laughs> slightly sort of glassy eyed, agitated. You know, I'm craving for you know something to eat, or I'm craving for a drink, or I'm craving to get out of the monastery and go somewhere else. And uh, <clears throat> there's a sort of uh, agitated and uh, a sharp-edged quality to that. But uh, and when we think of craving, we often uh, think of, of uh, the, the kinds of sense desire, like craving for delicious food or craving for alcohol or a cigarette or you know, the kind of sense desires that are, are very vivid and obvious. When the Buddha defined the the second noble truth, the, the cause of suffering, sense desire was just one of those three, uh, the, of the three causes of, of dukkha, and the other two are, are much more subtle. And these are bhava tanha and vibhava tanha. So bhava tanha means the desire to become, the desire to be, to exist. Vibhava tanha is the desire to not be, to not exist, to annihilate. And those of you who've been around uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato and listened to his teachings for many years, you'll be very familiar. This is a very, very common theme for his Dhamma teachings, is bhava-tanha and vibhava-tanha. Though that uh, these are more the, the meditator's diseases. And the, there's uh, the, the tendency when we are practicing meditation to really get caught up in these kinds of, uh, of subtle forms of, of craving. The uh, bhavatana, the desire to get concentrated, the desire to get uh, to have uh, insight, the, the, the desire to have a peaceful mind. Um, Vibhavatana, the desire to get rid of our chattering thoughts, the desire to get rid of our unruly emotions, to, the desire to to uh, to, uh, to get rid of our anger and jealousy and, and selfishness. And uh, <clears throat> And when we look at the the, uh, the Dhamma teachings, we look at the books, and we we can uh, see. Well, doesn't the Buddha say that we should stop the mind from chattering, or that we should free our heart from selfishness and greed and anger? Uh, um, you know, isn't it the right thing to want to get rid of those? Um, and isn't it the right thing to want to become concentrated? Isn't it the right thing to want to 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 get insight, to to become a stream enter, to become a a, a non-return or an arahant? Isn't that isn't that what the books are telling us? Isn't that what the teachings say over and over again? Well, again, this is a, 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 an extraordinarily important um, aspect of, of Dhamma practice to get clear because when we read those words, uh, and those of us who spent much time on retreat or trying to, to practice meditation, this will be very familiar territory, right? <laughs> and we can feel like we're doing the right thing, we're following all the instructions. Yeah, how come... Uh, uh, I'm not free, or how come it's when the bell goes at the end of the sitting? How come that's the most peaceful element? That's that's the really peaceful moment when ding, ah, <sighs> right? I mean, it's in, and it's not just because your your legs are released from their their prison, you know, and that you can move legally. But isn't it interesting how you're sitting there doing meditation? 
and you're trying to concentrate your mind and you're working with your you know, restlessness and your, uh, your obsessive memories and the mind's planning and thinking and trying to, to focus on your breath. Or, and then it, you're, you're, you're going at it with great sort of vigor and intensity and then ding! <sighs> now, what, what I like to point out is that one of the reasons why we feel relief uh, when the bell goes is because I don't have to do anything. Me, the meditator, can switch off at that point. And the thing that's the real chore is not the meditation, it's the me. Me, me the doer, me, the meditator, me who's trying to do something now to get some kind of result in the future. And ding, <sighs> I, you know, until I get out onto the walking path, I can now kind of not be. I, I, I don't have to be me, the meditator, who's doing something to get some kind of result. So when we are able to distinguish these these two, learning how to, to work, either our, our livelihood type of work, uh, our work um, in, the medi- or in the meditation hall, then once we can discern the, the difference between these two ways of working, well, we begin to find that we can apply ourselves and, and uh, engage in, in effort, so in meditation, but without creating that sense of, of chore, without uh, me having to do something, me having to, to, to get some sort of result. That there's still the work is being done, but there isn't that eye-making and mind-making uh, sort of, uh, addition to it. There's not that um, attitude permeating the, the effort to work. So uh, one of the ways I like to describe this, because they look very much like each other, you know, when we, we feel like we're, we're trying to follow the instructions, you know, trying to get concentrated, trying to dispel our, our chattering thoughts, trying to uh, be free of greed, hatred, and delusion. But uh, yes, it, it, th- those are indeed the instructions. But if we are practicing in accordance with Dhamma, if we're actually uh, working in the way that the Buddha describes, then all of that uh, that effort is done without there being a me who's doing the effort. The, the, the direction towards recognizing what is unwholesome uh, and re- uh, restraining the mind from creating the unwholesome. If the unwholesome has arisen, the, 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 the recognition of that and the letting go of it, that's guided by mindfulness and wisdom. It doesn't have to be a me who's doing something to make that happen. It's rather it's there's there's a, there's mindfulness there's wisdom that recognizes oh this is unwholesome there's a this is a, a restless a restless feeling or an angry feeling that's unwholesome let go of it that doesn't have to be cast in the in the the form of I, something I have to do similarly um, cultivating loving kindness or cultivating concentration cultivating insight that that uh, again can be guided by mindfulness and wisdom rather than I've got to have more loving kindness, I need to get concentrated, I need to, to develop insight. But the, the work that is, uh, is needed for those qualities to arise can be done without them being formed into an I and me and mine. So I wanted to, to emphasize that, that element because it's, it's, a, it's a subtle point, but it's a, it's a key point. And, and also particularly because these, not only do they look like each other, they also sound like each other in, uh, in Pali because one is uh, meditation, pavana, is the cure. That's the, that's the good stuff. <laughs> and the problem is bhava, which is becoming. So bhava and bhavana, they even, you know, they, when you write them down, they even look very similar to each other. They have the, the words have the same root. 
Yeah, the one is the, 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 the illness, and the other is the, the, the cure. And that uh, just like our, our left hand and our right hand look very like each other, and they are, they're a perfect mirror image of each other, but they're also their, their opposite. <laughs> In exactly the same way, bhava and bhavana, the, the, the practice of right effort, uh, and the, uh, the practice of becoming, you know, the desire to become and the desire to get rid of, they look very like each other, but they're also the opposite to each other. Just like the, the left hand and the right hand. And it's largely through learning to, to watch and to look and to explore our attitude that we can uh, discern the difference between those, those two elements. And <clears throat> when, when speaking about, uh, work and the path and, uh, um, and that area, uh, along with this of the, the essential attitude towards how we work, then there's also the the, the question or the, the issue of, of what work do we do? Yeah. Samma Ajiwo in the Eightfold Path. And um it's it's interesting in the many descriptions that you have in the uh in the Buddha's teachings about the Eightfold Path, uh, right livelihood, which for, for many people is like a a huge element of uh, of the the world. You know, what job do you do? <laughs> uh, what's your uh, what's your livelihood? What's your profession? What's your skill? What's your income? You know, the uh, and that whole realm of of material support and the 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 way you spend your time in the world, it gets much less page space than almost all the other elements of the eightfold path. So it doesn't get a lot of of explanation at all. And um, you know, I just, in terms of, of looking at uh, looking into the the teachings before this talk, I was exploring a few suttas, and there isn't really that many places where the Buddha does spell out um, what uh, a kind of right livelihood is. Uh, it, he simply speaks in terms of avoiding wrong livelihood, and what is, so what's defined is the uh, mitya ajiva, which is the like the wrong livelihoods, which he spells out as. Uh, dealing in weapons, uh, in <clears throat> in living beings, so um, slavery and uh, you know, and uh, say ra- uh, uh, raising animals, buying and selling animals for slaughter, um, in uh, poisons, in uh, intoxicants, drugs and alcohol, um, and <clears throat> in. Uh, uh, in uh, slaughtering animals, in uh, in killing animals and uh, buying and selling uh, meat. So those five are, are named as the wrong livelihoods. So uh, weapons, um, intoxicants, uh, living beings, you know, uh, poisons, and uh, and in the meat trade, and slaughtering and slaughtering animals. Um, so those are defined as what is wrong livelihood. And then uh, the uh, um, the uh, the understanding or the way people think uh, oftentimes today is that your know, right livelihood means that you work in in an eco-friendly cooperative, or that you uh, you, you work at a, a Buddhist monastery for no money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know you you have this term is used quite a lot in different Buddhist communities. You know, a right livelihood cooperative, or or I'm practicing right livelihood, and uh, so that and I'm not not criticizing that at all, but it's. It's very interesting that the the Buddha's definition of right, right livelihood is far far more broad. It doesn't just involve eco-friendly cooperatives, but it's basically uh, anything that doesn't involve 
killing other animals, uh, in, in, encouraging intoxication, uh, harming living beings. Um, and the, uh, the range is far, far more broad, which some of you might find very encouraging. Um, and, I, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's helpful, be, particularly because we see that it's, it's not so much that, or if you reflect on the teachings in this way, when you think about work and the path, it's uh, the, the range of what the Buddha, say, uh, acknowledged as, as appropriate livelihoods is extremely big. Uh, he doesn't condemn people for being bankers or, or even people being in the army. You know? He doesn't condemn um, people who are um, who <coughs> who have um, uh, you know a luxurious lifestyle. He doesn't say that that's I- immoral. But uh, uh, what he uh, what he does is uh, he uh, he points to the the attitude of mind that that we have or the the the, the way that we we use the the resources that we have and uh, the attitude that we have to the the way that we live these are the the crucial things so in a way it's a kind of subtle message that the buddha has that he, he doesn't spell out the uh, what the or, uh, what the sort of best livelihoods are uh, but he's uh, he points to it's how you use it because also there's one particular section of the uh, in the diganikaya where there's pages and pages of the wrong ways that monastics live, like you know, four or five pages of how to live wrongly as a as a, a monastic. <laughs> so this is how you know many uh, you know monks and and brahmins summoners. This is how they live, and you know things like fortune telling or um, you know, or being a matchmaker, and you know there's pages and pages and pages of all these wrong things for monastics to do. So. He's not so much uh, pinning down what particular livelihoods uh, there are that are, are sort of good, like you know you can only uh, uh, work for no money in a Buddhist monastery or you know, work in an eco-friendly cooperative, but rather uh, even if you work in a bank or you you, know, you work for a big corporation, the important thing is what you bring to that uh, uh, that field of activity and the human qualities with which you. Um, um, Say you embody and how you relate to others and the values of of, uh, of generosity, the values of honesty, of, of sila, and so forth that you bring forth uh, within that environment. So I thought that was an interesting point to uh, to to raise and to bring up for people's consideration. That because uh, sometimes people wonder, well, I work for this big, you know, this sort of GlaxoSmithKline, or I work for Monsanto, or I work for Barclays Bank. <laughs> You know, am I creating some kind of terrible karma because I work for this sort of evil multinational monster? Uh, well, yeah, it's a fair enough question because the, the big corporations, multinationals, get a lot of bad press. Uh, <clears throat> many years ago, uh, I was in uh, Michigan in the United States. There's a, a little Buddhist group in the Detroit area. And... Uh, so I was invited to go and give a, a few talks there, and one of the people who organized the Buddhist group was uh, a friend of Bill Ford, uh, who was one of is a great grandson of Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company, and um, at that time Bill Ford had been um, he was a sort of uh, you know very much a, a son of the royal family. <laughs> uh, Ford is is a is a very uh, you know, huge presence in the American corporate world. And uh, but he'd been a very um, good-hearted, eco-friendly kind of a bloke. So he was sort of 
he was shunt, had been shunted off to one side in the, the charitable side of Ford's activities, but he was uh, uh, being encouraged to to uh, to be more active in the the part of the the, the running of the main company, and um, and so uh, anyway, they, they arranged a time for me to meet with with him, Bill Ford, to go to his house and and meet him and his family, and uh, we had this very very interesting conversation, because. Uh, uh, it was more than 20 years ago now, so I, I can only paraphrase it rather than give you an accurate rendition. We went along the lines of, well, I'm a, I'm a Ford, I'm a great-grandson of Henry Ford, and um, I've got the name, and I've been in the family firm ever since I left university, and I'm being pressured to be you know, a real sort of central part of the company, but I don't like this. I just want to go and live in a cottage in the woods in, in New Hampshire with my wife and kids and you know, grow vegetables and have a you know, a, 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 a peaceful life in the country, and you as a Buddhist monk will obviously think this is a great idea, won't you? <laughs> so, not to, to put words into his mouth, but it was kind of along those lines, that uh, I'm really looking for a way to get out of this ghastly corporation, and this whole big business world, and I've had a lot of expectation being dumped on me, and please give me a good reason to step out and not have to do this. And um, and you know, and um, it was very sincere. His uh, uh, his request is also ex extremely rich. Had all the resources he could possibly wish for. But to my surprise, the way I found myself responding to him was to say, "Well, you, know, you are a great grandson of Henry Ford. You know, you are in the middle of this corporation, and they do want you to be involved. And so you have a lot of power." You have a lot of influence, and so rather than stepping out of the whole thing and going off to grow carrots and you know live in the woods in in New Hampshire, um, you you could instead consider um, giving yourself over to the firm, doing what you can, and being an influence for good within the firm, and uh, and so uh, be like a kind of undercover bodhisattva <laughs> in the. A sort of covert bodhisattva in the Ford Motor Company. And he didn't like that idea. <laughs> he was kind of annoyed, and because uh, he was looking for this, you know, Buddhist monk was definitely going to validate that urge to uh, to go off and be uh, you know, grow carrots and, and lettuces and in the woods. And uh, <clears throat> but I was quite serious, I, and uh, and yeah, I'm not sure how much influence that that conversation did have on him, but he did stay with the company. And also, he did, as, uh, over the years, make considerable effort to steer Ford towards a much more eco-friendly um, and um, uh, and a uh, responsible uh, set of business practices. And I'm sure you know Ford has still got lots of of um, let's say crimes and, uh, and shortcomings. But it was really uh, striking to see uh, how. Um, that he, you know, having chosen to stay within the company, he did you know, make the effort to to try and steer things in a in a wholesome way, and to to look to see what ways things could be done with, with greater responsibility and, and greater care, and uh, and also to benefit the the workers, benefit the the people who buy the the products, and to uh, to try and um, improve the the quality of life by re reducing the amount of emissions, uh, having more. Uh, eco-friendly cars or electric cars and uh, to to sort of broaden the concept of how people get uh, around and use vehicles on the road rather than just 
how can we make a, a bigger profit and how can we just sort of maximize the uh, advantage of the, the stockholders. So I, uh, again, I can't say uh, how much that conversation that I had with, with him influenced his, his choice, but it was very, it has been interesting to see over the last 20 years how someone who has got a good heart, who is very sincere, um, uh, really uh, uh, can have a, a good influence within even something that is sort of massively corporate and, uh, and uh, embedded in its, uh, in its ways as, as the Ford Motor Company. When there was a, an explosion at one of their plants and a number of the workers were, were killed and, and many injured, um, his first response was to immediately go to the plant. And people on his board would say, no, 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 you, you can't, you can't go to the, the, the site of the explosion. You know, you're the, you're the boss. You know, you're, you're the head of the company. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And he said, generals don't go to, and the, the quote was, generals don't go to the, to the, uh, the battlefront. And he said, okay, so bust me down to private. I'm going. <laughs> and, uh, he, he went, uh, and, uh, to, uh, to, to the place where the explosion had happened and, Met with the people who had survived and their families, and and it was a very very sincere gesture on his part, and that um, and by showing that very human and caring quality, then that encouraged people to say trust his his leadership, and um, and so that he's uh, over time he's had a very good effect on the company. So what this goes to say is that that uh, even if you do happen to work for Monsanto or Barclays or <laughs> Or um, GlaxoSmithKline, or the British government, even, you know, or the uh, GCHQ, or <laughs> that, uh, regardless of the, um, the the particular field of activity, even though it might have a bad reputation in terms of eco-friendly credentials, what we do within that field and how we operate can have a very, very big influence. And even small gestures that we make. Even just the, the standards that we we follow can have a big effect on the people around us, and uh, just the <clears throat> the very fact that, say, for example, um, another friend of ours um, who used to work for a, a, a large advertising company in in the states, J. Walter Thompson, uh, his his section of the company was was taken over by uh, another operative, and um, <clears throat> by another. You know, it was taken over by another company, and so he had a, a new boss. and And after a few months of working with this new boss, uh, this this man who's an extremely uh, successful advertising executive uh, went in to the boss and said, um, "I think I think there's some kind of mistake in the accounting because uh, you know th this contract that we've got with Company X to do their advertising campaign, um, we're charging them for 13 people working on the campaign. There's actually only two of us who are." doing all the the the, uh, the creative work and doing all the presentations and um but we're charging them for 13 people so that the, the, there's some kind of mistake here and his boss looked at him and said no there's no mistake so well uh you but that we're just we're deceiving the client by telling them that we've got 11 people uh, working for them that are not working for them that's right said, then he leaned over the desk and said there's nothing wrong with deceiving the client. <laughs> and so then this friend of ours said, okay, thank you very much, <laughs> walked out of the office, gave in his notice, and left the firm. Now, 
that gesture, then you know, one of the people who's a sort of top performing advertising person, then the the, the fact that they did that then sends a message. <laughs> it sends a message to the other people that work there. It sends a message to the boss, whether the boss gets the message or not, <laughs> is another story. But that has its effect. Uh, and another story. Um, forgive me for having more stories from America than Britain, but I was living there for the last fifteen or twenty years. But uh, this is a, a woman who was a uh, a corporate lawyer in in New York. She was a, a, a worked for a big financial company. And uh, so, the, 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 in this particular instance, there was a, uh, a a contract was being discussed. Someone who wanted to make a very large um, investment in this this financial um, this, this kind of uh, banking corporation. And so, they took the client out to lunch. So the, there was the boss, and then this this woman who was the the lawyer, and uh, and the client. And so, they they sat out. They went to have lunch at this uh, outdoor restaurant in, in New York. And at the end of the lunch, then the boss uh, said to, said to this woman, um, "So, um, what do you think? Uh, it's a pretty attractive contract, huh? You know, five hundred million dollar contract. Um, what do you reckon?" And she said, "We don't want to do business with a man like that." And he said, "Well, why? It's a very sweet deal. It's a five hundred million dollar investment, and and um, you know, I'd, I'd give you the I'd give you the 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 work to to um, uh, all the legal work needed to to sign them up, and you you get your percentage, you know." Five hundred million dollar contract, even at even at uh, half a percent, <laughs> that's uh, that's you know, serious money. That's like two and a half million dollars for you. And she said, "No, we shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't take him on. We shouldn't do business with a person like that." He said, "Well, what makes you say that? Because everything that he spoke about it sounded really sweet to me, and I, I can't see where we're losing." And she said, uh, "Did you see what he did with his glass?" What do you mean? <clears throat> well, as we were talking, a fly settled on the edge of his glass. Yeah, he dr- drank his uh, his orange juice, and there were some dregs of uh, of uh, juice in the bottom of the glass. A fly landed on the edge of the glass. He took his straw and he knocked the fly down into the glass. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I did actually. And then he put the straw in the glass and he held the fly down and drowned it. <laughs> As we were talking, did you notice that? He said, "Yeah, I did actually. That was that was kind of weird." She said, "We don't want to do business with a man like that." <laughs> and then, then her boss said, "Are you serious?" He says, "You know, you get two and a half million dollars out of this." She said, "I'm serious." So, um, even though her boss you know, was a very you know, much the sort of wheeler dealer, um, big money uh, Wall Street operative, that. Uh, then it had a, a very powerful effect on him. Here's my my trusted lawyer and advisor, and she's saying no to two and a half million dollar uh, <coughs> slice of the pie on the strength of one fly, <laughs> because because what that said about that that person and that uh, someone who would treat life so casually is not someone to be trusted and not someone that we want to do business with. So her own uh, uh, respect for Sila and the fact that that. Um, the she would put the life of that fly uh, as more worthy of respect than a, getting a, la- a large slice of uh, of uh, income into her own account, and also what it might do for the the company. But that has it, had its effect on her. So for her, it's a very good memory, something good to remember. 
and it's also something that her boss is never going to forget. And also it says that you know this is someone I can trust because here is someone who's uh, not going to just tell me something that that is advantageous for themselves or just what they think that I want to hear, but they're speaking from their own sense of what is noble and what is uh, 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 appropriate and, and beautiful. So in terms of, of uh, say, right livelihood, you think we're working for a, a, a Wall Street <laughs> you know, banking firm. Yeah, that's way off the map in terms of an eco-friendly cooperative. <laughs> but someone like that, you know, uh, uh, who makes choices and sets an example, even within a, uh, uh, a field of work like that, that is something that I would say is extraordinarily skillful and worthy. And, then, and it helps to introduce those wholesome qualities within that field and helps to encourage that. So then that example is there uh, and uh, is, has its ripples you know, down through, through time. Obviously, I'm, I'm not putting down eco-friendly cooperatives, you know, <laughs> and if you do want to work for such things, then, then absolutely marvelous. Or if you're involved in, in uh, say, working for um, human rights or struggling away on pennies and you think, Two and a half million dollars. <laughs> that, uh, you know, never even dream of that kind of money. And you're, you're struggling to working away at some uh, uh, little uh, newspaper or some kind of um, citizen's advice bureau trying to help the, you know, a small, uh, a small person get through in their lives. But I, I'm not belittling uh, those ways of work. And those are extremely noble and helpful. And that degree of putting aside our own personal needs in order to, to help others is very very worthwhile, but I just uh, talk about these um, uh, these sort of examples from the, the larger scale corporate type world, so that it it, it to illustrate how it's not just a matter of working at the citizens advice bureau, <laughs> or, or you know working as a, a campaigner for um, for human rights that equals noble activity, even working for a, 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 a kind of multinational. Um, that uh, might have all kinds of uh, bad credentials in the in the sort of um, uh, in the eyes of, of the um, uh, the world. That one can, if one if that's the work that you're involved in, then that's the, one can have a very helpful and beneficial influence. There's things that can be you can do in the way that you relate to others, the honesty that you exhibit, the the uh, the, the standards of kindness and generosity that that you show that are a great gift to, to those around you. So that the, uh, then the, the, the work that you're doing, uh, you see, is not just a matter of the, the, the content of what occupies your days, but it's, it's a lot to do with the, the attitude that we bring to it. It's a lot to do with the standards that we employ and then the choices that we make within that environment. And they have all kinds of, of ripple effects uh, upon upon others. Another story I like to tell, which is, um, again, from the States, this was a, 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 a single mother living in San Francisco who worked for a, a, um, an estate agent. And she told me this story her, herself because uh, I, was, I would go and, and teach in, in San Francisco and Berkeley quite uh, regularly. And, um, and there was a a Thai restaurant that uh, used to invite us for the meal. Like the day after I gave the talk, I'd stay over in town, and and uh, she was a friend of the restaurant owner, and so she uh, she came and chatted with me one day and was asking for my feedback. 
And she said what had happened in the previous few weeks was that she was working in the estate agent office and this uh, client came in in a, in a big rush and said, I've got this property, I need to sell it you know, really fast, uh, you know, as quickly as possible, I don't really care how much, how much you get for it. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, but I really, I, I need the money very, very quickly. I've, I've got a, a financial crunch on, and so uh, you know, can you uh, can you take the property? And the person was in a real hurry, so she uh, she took on the the contract, and um, she um, she said, "Well, if you want to sell it fast, then we'll we'll, we'll price it right down. So let's put it on the market for four hundred thousand. Said, "Fine, fine, that's great, absolutely, no problem. Just it needs to go quickly." So uh, the, the clients were rushed out of the office, uh, she made a couple of phone calls, and then she found a buyer for 650000 yeah, with, within a couple of hours. And she said, so then I realized I'm the only person who knows you know, how much the, the client is expecting. Uh, I'm the only person who knows what the offer is. If I did the paperwork... <laughs> I could uh, I could uh, steer uh, that quarter of a million into my own account. That uh, <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> if I, if I tell the client it went for four hundred, um, I received the six fifty that the the buyer wants to to um, to offer. Two hundred and fifty can go into my account, and no one would know. So she said. So there I was, and I, uh, sitting at, the, at my desk, realizing this would be very easy. <laughs> and um, and this, she said, "So I felt this enormous temptation." So I'm a single mother. I've got a, a kid that I'm raising. Um, I have a, you know, bills to pay, and my child has been asking for a new bicycle, and I haven't been able to afford it. And we've got a really tiny apartment, and so there's this enormous temptation rose up. Um, but then in, instead, uh, as I sort of sat with that for the rest of the day, then you know, I realized that would be a dreadful mistake. So she said then, so, I went, uh, so that, that evening, this had just been a, a few days before, so I went home and I, uh, and I sat down with my son, her son was about nine years old, and she said, uh, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> Today, I was very, very tempted. So today, um, you, you know that new bicycle you've wanted? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you're not going to get it. <laughs> so I was very tempted, and she and uh, he was quite good at, at, at mathematics, and so she used to do her bookkeeping with her son, and sort of as a way of teaching him maths and and doing uh, his helping her and and sort of doing homework together. And so she walked him through what the scam would have been. So look, this is this is how I would have done it, and <clears throat> and so she she showed him what had happened. And described the incident, and said, "See, and all I'd have to do is just change the numbers here, and no one else would have known, just me." But I didn't do it. And uh, she said, "How do you feel about that?" Well, I'm not sure, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, "Well, yeah, you know, the reason why I didn't do it is that because if I did do it, we could move to a new apartment, I could get you a new bicycle, but I would always be afraid someone's going to find out." I, uh, I'm pretty sure I could do all the paperwork, and uh, I'm pretty sure that it would uh, it would be invisible. But I would know. Uh, and said like, uh, and she quoted Ajahn Chah. I think he said, "You might think when you're doing something wrong that nobody knows, 
but somebody does know. You know. <laughs> That's the somebody who's watching. You, know, you think nobody's watching, but you're watching. <laughs> you know. And so she said, that would always be there in the back of my mind. Uh, and uh, I would always be worried. Then if I got caught and I got taken away in jail, then you know, you wouldn't, uh, you've, you've already only got one parent, and then you wouldn't have any. And then we'd you know, really be in trouble. And I'd be locked up in jail, and then we would all, we would all lose. And so, you know, I chose not to to um, uh, to uh, make that um, make that the the deal and take the money for myself. So, do you understand? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, I thought that was extraordinarily skillful uh, of the mother to both acknowledge her temptation and all the good reasons for the temptation, <laughs> but also to then describe why she wasn't going to do that and and also how you know these things work even if you've you know you've covered it up incredibly well <laughs> and you can make all kinds of um cases to justify it. well you know the 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 estate agency they make far more profit than they know what than they know what to do with in the first place and you know they no one would really know and it's and it's going to benefit us very much and it'll really help our family and then we'll all be happier and won't that be good? You know, everybody wins. <laughs> but she, uh, she said, but you know what, you know the, the kind of way these things work that two me, two people meet at the party and they're, they're chatting with each other and they say, you know, where do you live? Oh, I'm on, I'm on, uh, Sansom Street. Oh, oh really? I had, I used to have an apartment on Sansom Street. Oh, which number are you at? Oh, 654. 654. I used to own that place. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I, I sold it at a really breakdown price. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. When did you sell it? Yeah. <laughs> And you oh, you sold it at the same time I bought it, and oh, that wasn't the same price. Uh-huh. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's how these things trickle out. So, um, this is to say that the, when we are considering our uh, work and how we function in the world, the element of sila and the guidance of the five precepts is an incredibly uh, straightforward and helpful principle of uh, what's going to bring peace within our lives and what's going to uh, even bring, bring profit in our work. I remember years ago, um, we had a wedding blessing here and um, there was a, a couple, the, the husband was a, a portrait painter and uh, one of the, the wedding uh, people to, who were invited as a guest to the wedding blessing was uh, uh, somebody who teaches at Ashridge Management College, which is this um, Amravati's partner across the valley is this sort of this the kind of uh, high uh, high powered management training center Ashridge College, and this fellow the, the husband had done a portrait of this this bloke, and he invited him along to the to the wedding blessing, and he'd asked me to to give a little synopsis of Buddhism and, and Buddhist practices to the, the other people coming for the blessing, and after I gave this sort of ten minute fifteen minute uh, um, spiel on on Buddhism, this fellow said. You know, I, I'm, I, I teach management. Uh, I'm a management consultant. I teach in Ashridge. And you might be surprised to hear this, but many of the principles that you're describing are exactly what we teach at Ashridge. <laughs> and particularly what you were saying about honesty. You said, you know, in the business world, um, people talk about how to maximize profit and how to succeed in the business world. He said, you know, the thing that succeeds most, uh, the thing that is guaranteed to bring you yeah, profit over time is trust. That's what the business world runs on. It's trust. And, if, and you can trick people and you can work a clever number and you can make a, 
a small, even make a, 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 a substantial profit for a bit of time. But as soon as people know that you're not trustworthy, that you're working a number on them, that you're cheating in some way, people won't want to do business with you. And uh, the ones who, who do well over time and whose uh, businesses uh, stay in business, they're the ones that people know you can go to them. They, what they, what they, they say is what they do, what they do is what they say. They're reliable. And that, that sense of honesty and straightforwardness, that is the most precious commodity in any business, uh, in, in any business concern. And so what you were saying about uh, the Buddhist morality, you know, you say, funnily enough, that's just what we find <laughs> in the in the business world too. And uh, so that that um, uh, that set of guidelines of how to function in the world is uh, is extremely uh, uh, helpful and accessible framework, both in our working life, also how we function in the family. How we function in the school environment or the monastery environment or or any of the way uh, the domains in which we operate as as people um, that we uh, by establishing those those uh, standards of respectfulness towards other beings harmlessness honesty uh, restraint and not acting in ways that are destructive or indulgent or selfish then we create an environment of trust we create an environment of, of benevolence and where you know, we ourselves can can be at ease and enjoy a, a quality of, of peace and and freedom and we also help to to bring that to the people around us that the that others uh, can also benefit from that sense of of security that uh, on the the, uh, the the standards that we're we're helping to embody so then maybe the, the last thing to uh, to reflect on you know, when considering the um, work and the path that um, <clears throat> when we are, as I was saying at the, the beginning, we can often think of, of uh, or be drawn by that that uh, um, that put the the attraction of wouldn't it be nice not to have to bother? Right? Oh, I'll be glad when this is all over. You know that that's a very powerful feeling for all of us. Even those of you, I, I, I suspect there's a bunch of people from the, the Buddhist women's retreat, right? Yes. Got a certain sense. There's a, <laughs> this happens most years. And that even though you might be enjoying the retreat, and even the people who are leading the retreat might be enjoying the retreat, there can still be, a, oh, wouldn't it be nice when, they, when I don't have to do this, when this is over, or when the Dhamma talk's finished, we can have the tea break, you know. <laughs> wouldn't, it be nice, wouldn't it be nice when the Sunday talks are finished? Or, but it'd be nice when and when, and that we're to to acknowledge that that uh, the kind of worldly conditioning, uh, but the degree to which something is limiting or oppressive, is the degree to which I would suggest is the degree to which I am here that the 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 I making and mind making habit, and when we notice that, wouldn't it be nice if this, when this is all over when I don't have to bother? Then it's uh, rather than the thing. <laughs> Rather than the attention focusing on the thing that uh, that uh, as being the bother, just turn the camera around and, and see well that the thing that's bothering <laughs> is the I, and so that when when we let go of that uh, self-centered perspectives and those habits of of, uh, of reacting and relating in that way, then we find that uh, we are very uh, at ease engaging with activity. We're 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 glad to be involved with it 
And then when it comes to an end, then it's, um, uh, it, we, we can enjoy the result of that, but we're not, we're not uh, sort of uh, invested in that in, in some kind of imbalanced way. And as uh, Venerable Sariputta talked about, uh, this is a very interesting way of, of relating to the working life of an arahant. You might not think of that, but when an enlightened being relating to the work that they, they sort of have to do. In the Venerable Sariputta's reflections on his life, he says, I do not long for life, I do not long for death, but I know my time is coming, like a servant does their wages. So that's a very interesting thing to reflect on. I do not long for life, I'm not clinging to, to life, hoping to sort of maximize what I get out of it. I do not long for death, I'm not waiting for it all to be over. Oh, you know, so, letting go of bhavatana and vibhavatana. I do not long for life, I do not long for death. But I know my time is coming. You know, I know that the ending is coming. Just like a, a servant or a, a worker does their wages. Yeah, whether I want it or not, Friday's coming. <laughs> yeah, the retirement is coming. Yeah, this, this thing, this, this uh, particular condition is going to reach its end. And so, whatever degree of limitation that there might be that, that comes from that, that that is going to come to an end, and so that the you know the wages are coming, or the the reward, the the, uh, the the natural result is coming. So different interpretations can be put onto that, but I feel that's one of the most uh, uh, say um, powerful and you know, challenging but insightful reflections. It doesn't get quoted very much, but I feel it's really uh, useful to look at. You know, I do not long for life, I do not long for death, but I know my time is coming. <laughs> I know the time is coming. Just like a servant does their wages, and that uh, the um, also in relationship to the aging of the body, that uh, many people as the as our bodies get older, they feel that the the body with its aches and pains and its inability to see and hear and a lack of uh, of uh, flexibility. Oh, <laughs> what a burden this is, and that uh, and it's natural again to be looking to be free of the. The, um, the aches and pains and difficulties with an aging body, but uh, that um, just like we uh, we can reflect on work coming to an end, the the uh, the, the, the effort of of uh, living within the confines of, a, of an aging and increasingly uncomfortable body, that uh, yeah, well, <laughs> it's reaching its end, <laughs> whether you like it or not. That that end that end is coming. So it's not worshiping death. It's not clinging to life. But knowing that okay, this this is the condition that's come into being, and it reaches its, its end at a certain point, and the end is coming. So the end has come. It's now five past three. Conveniently, so let's have a, uh, a pause for some tea. The tea has also come. So. Uh,